Hello and welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching, learning, community, conversation, and your digital life, made for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark-Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning, Technology, and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tecumloops Te Sequem within the unceded traditional lands of Sequem'ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And my friends, for someone who talks a lot about balance, I am out of balance. Best laid plans of mice and men go fast awry. Let's get into it. So I contemplated making the opening essay this week, just me listing things I am currently behind schedule on. I thought it'd be kind of funny, Um, but then I realized that it would actually probably only be funny to me, but I am behind on a lot of things and I'm feeling quite overwhelmed at the moment. I feel like I talk about being overwhelmed on the podcast a lot. (laughs) This, This is another entry in my general oeuvre of Brenna finds adulthood exhausting, I guess. Kiddo is homesick this week, which, you know, complicates things, but it's not really the reason I'm so far behind on everything. I've just found that I move through work so much more slowly since the beginning of the pandemic. I don't think I have brain fog, although I kind of always feel like maybe that's a possibility. I think I just am not recovered from what happened in the spring of 2020. And I wonder sometimes if it's foolish to hope that I will one day be recovered, that maybe this is just me now, a little slower, hopefully a lot gentler and a lot kinder, but not someone who works at the capacity I once worked at. I don't love that idea. Like many of us, I have my identity unhealthily wrapped up in the work that I do and what I can accomplish. So acknowledging change and what it might look like is not easy. But I'm thinking that rather than constantly being in this cycle of taking on a lot and failing to deliver, I should probably nip the cycle in the bud and take on less stuff. I didn't do any conferences this fall, which is weird for me. And it's also been really good. And what's blown my mind and my sense that maybe maybe this is something I need to address is that I do not have any FOMO, no FOMO here, none. Uh, fear of missing out for the cooler than me in the audience. I thought I would feel bad seeing all the conferences come and go without my involvement. And I haven't at all. It doesn't change how far behind I am on a bunch of larger projects and how much I need to find some brain space to focus, but I'm glad that I'm at least not also feeling like there are things I want to be at or attending. I mean, the reality is I don't want to go to an in-person conference. I just don't. That's just just so many people breathing on each other. I just don't know if I'll ever want to do that again. But but even the really great virtual ones, I'm just really content to be taking a step back at the moment and grateful, honestly, that I'm in this moment in my career with my tenure and promotion package in and the waiting game beginning that it kind of feels like I can right now anyway, take a pause. 
I have no clever segue, again, (laughs) to my guest this week, except that I'm really delighted to invite Lisa Lake on the show. Lisa works in a different kind of instructional support role for me, and I'm always eager to talk about these very invisible roles across campus and how us very strange non-teaching faculty facilitate some of the work, sometimes a lot of the work, (laughs) of teaching and learning on this campus. I'm going to let Lisa take it from here. I am here today with Lisa Lake. Lisa, could you introduce yourself, say a little bit about your role and where people might find you on campus? Sure. Thanks for having me, Brenna. I'm very excited about it. I am the coordinator of international programs and partnership with the Gallardi School of Business and Economics. So I I do have an office in uh, the International Building and been at TRU since 1998. I almost hate to say that. It's such a long time. And I've been with Gallardi since 2008. So my first role with Gallardi was an instructional support, but it was quite different than the role that I have now. It's really moved a long way from when I was hired into the role and what I actually do now for instructional support. Okay, so I'm very interested in finding out more about your role because I feel like there are these pockets of us instructional support faculty kind of tucked away all over the university. And I I don't know what everyone does or how our roles kind of complement each other. So yeah, I wonder if you would say a little bit about the coordination role that you're in now. And I absolutely agree. I mean, we're kind of rare birds being instructional support. And I do think they're quite different. When I was doing my tenure and promotion application, my department had to write complete new language because I didn't fit in any of the documents that they had. So the role that I fill right now is one of supporting our faculty who go to China. So maybe I should step back. We do offer our business degree as a joint degree with two different institutions institutions in China. So one is in Tianjin and the other is in Shanghai. Our faculty teach eight classes a year at each of those two institutions. So on an annual basis, we have 16 faculty teaching in China. Now, pre-pandemic, they were actually teaching in China. So they were going to teach one course in a four-week compressed fashion. So one three-credit course for each of those faculty members. So a lot of my work was working with our partners overseas, making sure that our faculty here had all the support they needed to be successful in those teaching blocks. I mean, four weeks is an incredibly short time to be teaching a three-credit course to students whose not only is their first language not English, they are working in an institution that has no English. So while our students here, uh, who come here from many, many countries, do get quite proficient in English, our students in China are a little bit more challenged by that. They are in what are classified as bilingual programs there, but they would be a little bit more, I always say it's a bit more like the bilingual nature of French immersion. So I have three daughters, all went to French immersion, spoke really passable French, but if you had put them, you know, into a place where they needed to speak only French, they would have had a really, really tough time. So these students in China would be pretty much in the same boat. As our faculty start teaching in English only, it is, it's a real challenge for them, both the faculty and the students. So I do a lot of work around 
around those pieces of making sure that everyone is supported in that teaching. You know, when we think about international students or domestic students who are struggling with language in in different capacities, different ways, I can think of a range of supports that they have on campus to lean on that aren't strictly the purview of the instructor. So I'm thinking about different peer support tutoring programs. I'm thinking about the study coaching at the writing center. I'm thinking about the writing center itself, right? Like we have Mm -hmm. lots of things in place to support learners. They might not really be specifically in ESL or acquired language supports, but there are support mechanisms in place in English to support those learners. Is there anything like that for the students who are learning in China? Unfortunately, at this point, no, it is quite a gap. My counterparts there do speak English. They have some English, but they are teaching faculty. So they do teach probably partially in English and partially in their Chinese dialect, but they don't have an overall support system. And certainly that is something that we are keenly aware of and would like to improve upon, but it is a real gap right now. And I don't know that we will necessarily find a way or a mechanism to change that. We have been working really closely with those students on getting them access to MyTRU. They do use their MyTRU a little bit, but one of the things we would like to do is to try and have some kind of support for those students through different services here. Much of the problem though right now is time differences because of course they're 15 hours ahead. So there are so many different components that we really need to try and figure out. So it's certainly on the list of things that we're looking toward, I would say it would probably be one of the more challenging that we will be dealing with as we continue with these programs. I would imagine so, just because the very structure, you know, it's not like you can just slot them into services that are already in place at the partner university. So I can see how that would be really complicated. They don't have any of those services. So it does get to be a real challenge. Now, you said before the pandemic, our faculty would go to China. I'm guessing that they, particularly through the campus closure period, of course, they wouldn't have been. But is that still the case? Are they still sort of grounded here in Kamloops? That is correct. So we had the plan originally, of course, you know, like everyone, I thought, oh, this will be over very soon. Improved quite, quite wrong. And of course, China has had their own issues in terms of opening up the country. So right now it is virtually impossible for any of us to get a visa to go to China. So pre-pandemic, we did have 16 faculty going. I would go usually twice a year and always when we had faculty there. So I would go over for a few days at each institution, make sure that our faculty were settled in there, that there were institutional issues that maybe I could help smooth over. We also do quality assurance because they are teaching some of our courses, which work towards the degree. And sorry, when I say they, I mean our Chinese faculty at those institutions are teaching from our course outlines. But you know, there is a whole quality assurance piece there that needs to be dealt with. So that's a big part of my job as well. Since pandemic, we have, of course, been grounded. So I do spend a fair amount of time on Zoom calls with our Chinese partners, our partners at True World, who absolutely support what I do almost on a daily basis. And our faculty are teaching on Zoom using the Moodle platform, which was a huge, huge learning curve for all of us, given the differences in technology and availability of technology in the two countries. So it's been quite a learning curve to make sure that 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 is working in the best way. And we we actually, every, we send, or 
I, I still use the term send. We have faculty who teach twice a year. And so in those teaching blocks, we do change things from the time before. We learn something every single time we teach there. And then we try and modify that a bit to make the experience better for the students and the faculty who are teaching those courses. Your workday must not be very nine to five It's not very nine to five This week, I have two different calls with our partners in China, and those are at 5 in the evening. So that would be very early in the morning for them. So it's not unusual for me to be talking with them at five or six in the evening, which of course is their next morning, early morning. Same is true for our faculty when they're teaching there. They teach in the evening from here so that they're getting our students there in the morning. And some of the teaching blocks go quite late into the evening, you know, sometimes nine or 10 in the evening. So another expectation I really have to make sure faculty are aware of. They can't assume that they can teach at 10 in the morning. That absolutely won't work. So the time zone is is a challenge, which and it's not a challenge when faculty are physically there because, of course, they will teach in the time zone in China. So it has been a challenge that, again, we didn't really anticipate as we started the COVID coverage of those courses. And I guess you're really, in terms of sort of future planning for the program, you're really kind of, you can't really predict when the Chinese government is going to allow folks to come over again, I would imagine, right? So are you guys kind of just in a holding pattern of doing it this way? It, it That is exactly what we're in at the moment. You know, we sort of set that goalpost over and over and it just seems to move further and further away. I certainly at this point would not feel any real comfort in going to China, even if it were open. Our students in China have been on and off campus quite a number of times. They will be invited back onto campus and then there will be an outbreak in the university or even the city where the campus is and everyone has to return home. Our students all live on campus in China. There, there's been a lot of movement for our students, which is really challenging yeah. for them to be back and forth, back and forth. They said they have about 85% of their students back, which means they're having to do virtual for those students who are not yet allowed to come back. They may be from provinces where there is still a lockdown, so they're not able to travel back to their university. So it's been incredibly challenging for them as well. It's almost easier when our faculty teach because they're teaching virtually to the entire cohort rather than having some there and some in that sort of dual modality. So it's been a real challenge here, and it's been a huge challenge for our partners and for our students who are off sure as well. And when I say our students, they are our students, even though most of them will never come to our campus, they are getting our degree. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the supports around English language, but in terms of sort of pastoral support around all of these structural issues, does that end up being primarily the purview of the partner institution? It is primarily the partner institution. I work quite closely with my counterparts there. So we do quite a bit of work together, but ultimately they are the ones that are really working with those students on a day-to-day basis. Now, there is an opportunity for students, and again, I'm talking pre-pandemic, students from our program in Tianjin were able to come and study here for their third year, both their fall and or winter semesters. And we would generally get about 10 to 15% of those students would elect to come and be on campus for a period of time, so either one or two semesters. And they would, of course, then be under the umbrella of TRU world and would have all of that support. They would have me here as an academic support for them. So they do get 
all of those supports that we provide all international students, but we just don't have the ability to do that for students who are at a different campus. And our students from Shanghai, I should mention, can come in their fourth year, and so they can complete their degree with us. And about 7 to 8% of students from Shanghai would take that opportunity. Fourth year is a little challenging for them because, of course, if you don't do well, if you fail a course, that holds up your graduation. They work in a full cohort program there, so they might need to wait a year to pick up the course that they have not completed. So there's a lot of different stress for those students in terms of how they program their classes. They don't really get a choice. So when they students come here in third year, they're following exactly the same courses that their counterparts in China are taking, they're just taking them with faculty on our campus here. So there's no real choices for them when they come here. I'm just saying these are the courses you must take so that you can meet the graduation requirements. So there is an opportunity or has been an opportunity, and we're always really delighted to see those students. And I really need to tell you, like they perform so incredibly well in our classrooms here. They're taking five courses, so a 15-credit semester, and I would say at least 80 to 90% of them are making the dean's list each semester that they're here. So while the language may be a bit of a challenge, certainly the business education that they're getting is really solid. And so we're really pleased about that part of the partnership. I think part of it is that they come as five to 15 students coming from the same class. So they've got a little of their own support from their classmates. They've, they've been studying with these classmates already for two to three years. So they do have a little built-in support there. I'm available to them all the time that they're here. They're international student advisors are available to them for any sorts of cultural issues where maybe they're just not understanding how to access banking here or, you know, healthcare services, things that we really take for granted quite often are, are very challenging for students. And if they're coming for a very short period of time, there are a lot of things that they won't necessarily understand right away. They do have a lot of support here in their time here, but they do go back to China and they complete their degree. Even the students who come here in fourth year do have to go go back and finish a comprehensive exam, which is part of their graduation program there and not part of ours. So in China, all students do a comprehensive thesis-based program in their fourth year. So our students who come here in fourth year still have to go back and finish that before they can get their degree in China. So I would love to hear about the instructional support sort of side of your work. I I don't know how often you hear this question, but the question that I get most when people find out that I am instructional support faculty is, so why is that job faculty exactly? Um, so I'm not really asking you that question because I don't like it. But I am curious about, you know, I, I can clearly see the student support and the coordination piece, and I'm wondering what the faculty support piece looks like. Sure. The faculty support piece came from actually from the 2008 move over to Gillardi into student services. And at that time, I was the only advisor that we had here. And so I was doing all undergraduate, post-baccalaureate program and graduate student advising. Oh my God, Lisa. So I know it was pretty crazy. I was doing all the degree audits and those were done on paper. Oh <laughs> and I was doing all the transfer credit assessment. So I was doing things that fall into what comes under faculty council work. So it really had to fit within a faculty position. Originally, this had been a QP position. There was some talk of putting it into an admin position, but ultimately the decision was made that it should be instructional support because the vast majority of what needed to be done was what is deemed to be by the institution faculty work. So a lot 
of what I do is maybe around the edges I would say a faculty work. So it is still, you know, the quality assurance for the programs there. So I am intimately involved in what is happening with those programs. Are they getting the learning outcomes that we're expecting from each course and the program learning outcomes? So those, you know, very clearly are faculty driven. So there is certainly a faculty component there. I do a lot of work uh, around sort of our capacity issues here. So working with our chairs on being a little bit of a bridge between uh, the admissions departments, the enrollment pieces where we get those projections of how many students will be coming into each program. So then I will kind of break that down into based on that, how many sections of different courses will we need. So I work quite closely with the chairs and the associate dean to support the development of capacity so that we're not running into major waitlist issues, which we don't always meet. Again, moving target. And so I, I do a lot of, of that kind of work. And I work on our undergraduate curriculum committee. So really trying to keep an eye on our programs. So our BBA and our post-bac diplomas really are not department programs. So while there might be, a, for instance, a major in accounting or a post-bac in accounting, so the majority of those courses would be accounting finance. So those would come strictly under the purview of, of those departments. There are a lot of courses that are core courses and they come from all of our different departments and some service departments as well. So I do a lot of work overseeing those courses to make sure that all those pieces work together so that we don't have someone taking a course out of the core that is going to impact the rest of the degree. So it's a lot of work that really looks at how does our curriculum work or is it working or do we need to make changes? And if we do, who do I need to work with to see if that's possible? So that will usually start with my associate dean then moving down to the chairs and working through it in that respect. There's so many roles across the institution that need to function in order for the work of teaching and learning to take place. And they're often so invisible. And, you know, I really related to what you said about putting together your tenure and promotion file and like, what is the language? Like how I feel like I spend so much energy in those kinds of formal settings, just explaining the role before I can explain how I've met the you know criteria for it. I would say that there are still probably a number of our faculty who have no idea, A, that I am faculty, totally. <laughs> other than now I'm chairing our faculty council. So maybe they're, they've <laughs> clicked onto that this year. But a lot of them just don't even really understand the role that I serve because I'm not really working with them on a day-to-day basis. I'm generally working more at the chair or associate dean, kind of, you know, I'm supporting those roles more than I'm supporting individual faculty. But I do support individual faculty as well. So for instance, where we're working a couple of faculty members, we've been doing some limited field schools again, pre-pandemic, where we would take students for reading week to another partner institution. We had been using some institutions in Europe. And so faculty would be doing a course here, a three-credit course that required the travel component. So I would be sort of that bridge again between our faculty here and the faculty where the students were going to travel. And then I would travel with them and I would sort of serve as I would say a cultural director. So the students were there, they were working on their programs, but there's because you're in another country, you do want to have some ability to highlight some of that culture. And some of that might be things like the kinds of businesses that are in that area. What are, you know, and so it would be then working with the partners to set up a program where we could take students on field trips from there to see what does international business look like here. So I do some of that and 
since COVID, we've been trying to develop some what we call COIL project. So that's a collaborative online intercultural learning. It's kind of a way of almost leveling that playing field for students because so many of them cannot afford to do a trip somewhere else. So this would give an ability to do an international learning experience. So maybe doing a a program with a partner school, perhaps working on a group project and presenting that. So we have one that we're working on right now, a faculty member and I, for a delivery in winter this year. So we're really excited to see how that might go it, you know, I, I think there are, there's really some great reasons for why we want to do more COIL. I think the cost of students going on an international experience can be quite prohibitive. And it's not just the cost, it's the lives that students leave here and might have to leave here for that period of time. We're very much a commuter campus where we've got students who are, are sometimes a little older and have families, they have you know children in school, they have jobs that they can't leave. There are a lot of reasons why students cannot take part in an international learning experience. So having the ability to do COIL and connect students sort of a student-to-student group with a group of students in another country while they do a, a project together. I think it's a really nice way of giving them that opportunity and that experience without actually having to travel, which again, is just not really feasible for a number of students. So as much as we would love every student to have that experience, it's it's just not reality. I really love hearing about how school business has innovated through this period. It's been such a stressful time. And I think the pressures on your faculty, possibly more than any other area of campus have been really major, right? Like the international engagement is huge. And it is. so the ways you guys are figuring to navigate through it, I find really fascinating. And, you know, when we went into COVID originally, and then, you know, that first year when everybody had one week to figure out how do I deliver the rest of my class virtually? Yeah, I have much of that blacked out in my memory. Much of, of the work that you did. And, you know, it was a challenge for everyone. But the following year, we had, of course, we were still admitting students from all over the world, but they weren't coming here. So now we've got to do a full orientation with them online, bring them into online learning with Moodle, with Zoom, you know, in a format where they've never learned that way before. And we're all struggling to really understand exactly, you know, how to do this in the best way that we can. And so, you know, I just give absolute credit to those students who hung in with us while they were starting. They did their entire first year, getting up at three in the morning to get onto a class was just unimaginable to me. My dean and I would do some sort of, we called them coffee with the dean, but to be honest, it was coffee for us. It was the middle of the night for a number of our students. And they would wake up to have a little chat on Zoom with my dean and I about how things were going for them. And it was eye-opening to me, you know, what these new students were going through. Our students were complaining, oh, you know, I don't like learning online. And we get that. But these students were even doubly challenged by it. But you know, when they finally did get to campus, they were just so happy about being here, probably happier than most international students I've seen. After a year of, of learning online, I think they were they were quite thrilled to actually be on campus and really feel that campus community. It's hard, really hard to recreate that when your students are always online. Well, and not just online, but online at like 
really difficult times times to engage with, right? And technical issues. I mean, in our office, we definitely saw the particular barriers and challenges for students in certain parts of the world where whether it was because there was poor infrastructure or because there was strong firewalling, it was it was hard for those students. And the fact that they made it through and even wanted to keep hanging out at TRU was just, <laughs> just amazed. I know. We all expected that, you know, when we did open again, a lot of those students would just say, you know, I tried it. <laughs> but they came. They they came and they were happy to be here. And it's really lovely to see some of them in our post back. It, it's a two-year program. So some of those students are graduating already and they are happy that they got to do a year here, a year and a half here. So, you know, they really took advantage of all the opportunities once they got here. But it's a tough one for them when half of their program is being taught to them in their bedroom at home in the middle of the night. And, you know, and I would say a lot of them, because they couldn't come, ended up continuing on with maybe full-time jobs that they were doing. So it was really, I give them full credit for hanging in for, you know, most of them did really quite well in that online environment. But I would say most of them are quite happy to be here and be learning in a classroom environment again. Yeah, I get it. If I had to choose between 3am on, on Zoom coming to class, I know what I would pick. Yeah, I guess the, the one benefit is because there were so many in the class, the instructors would say, you know, keep your cameras off unless we're calling for questions or you're in a breakout room. And so you could be in your pajamas oh, and, good. you know, know nobody nobody would know and i understand why i mean the bandwidth for many of them just could not handle it but it does i think dehumanize those students a little bit when you're not seeing them you're not seeing their reactions and understanding did they you know did they clearly understand that do i need to go a different way of kind of presenting this particular part of the curriculum maybe they're just not getting it but they're not they're too shy to say oh could you tell me that another way those things that you can see those visual cues when you're in a classroom if if people are online with a camera off, you really can't see that. And a lot of them are just not brave enough to do that hand up function and say, I have a question. <laughs> Even though we say, you know, if you have a question, there are probably at least 10 others that have the same question. But, you know, it's hard. And again, most of them come from a very different learning environment as they move into a more Western environment. And questioning is not really something that comes easily to a number of, of our international students. So it's really teaching them about the education culture as well as teaching them the curriculum that we're trying to impart. Yeah, absolutely. Which again, becomes difficult without the sort of immersion in the culture, right? When you can see your fellow students, you know, following up with an instructor after class, you can see them going to office hours, like you can see what those things are for and what they look like. But that's a lot harder to communicate when your engagement with the institution is really just the one or two professors who you're seeing, right? As opposed to a more sort of cohesive experience. And even, you know, making relationships with other students is pretty difficult when you're not seeing them. And, you know, of course, we're a really big school with a lot of sections of, of every course. Students don't necessarily take all the same courses at the same time. So you might be taking five courses and not encounter a student who is in, you know, more than one or two of your sections. So again, having that ability to make those relationships with the students who are 
actually in your class. I think it's just hugely important to how you feel about your place in the institution. It is. And you know, there's like, it's one of those things, right? There's this huge body of research on how to build community online. And Mm -hmm. nobody could use that in the moment because we had five days (laughs) to put everything online, right? And then the pace was so fast. And you know, I think faculty worked really hard to try to do that. But there's also an element of, especially for first year classes, learning how to learn. And Mm -hmm. you're learning how to learn in a modality that your faculty member is also learning how to teach in. I mean, there were just just so much that could have possibly kind of faltered that, I don't know, the fact that we all survived, it remains a miracle to me. I, I would agree. And, you know, there yeah, there were obviously different abilities and, and different interests among our faculty to really either engage in, you know, this virtual learning. And I, I, I would say that we still have faculty members here who would prefer to be teaching virtually. They found a great deal of enjoyment, fulfillment, you know, it really appealed to them and others who just could not wait to get back on campus. And so that really, I think, mimics the students totally. because, again, we have a lot of students who would love to be just virtual because then they could live somewhere else. They could live, you know, in Vancouver where they feel like there are more job opportunities or perhaps in Toronto where they have family. And so their costs of living would be smaller than they might be living on their own. They would have their own family support. So there are a lot of reasons that some students would like to continue learning virtually. But of course, we are a a face-to-face campus. The study permits that those international students are able to get make sure that they are studying in a face-to-face manner. So it's a challenge. And having tasted it, some of them would love to keep it. Others, of course, are just really happy that we're back. So it's, you know, we find that across faculty and students for sure. Definitely true. This has been a really great chat, Lisa. I'm so glad I had you on the show today. I think it's so interesting to hear about the kinds of non-teaching faculty work that happen across the campus. As I think I already said this, but I, I do feel like our work is often really invisible, but I think also everything you've described is really essential to how your programs run. And so I think it's just nice to have an opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, from the perspective of the school, some of the work that I do could absolutely be done by a faculty member who's teaching, but then it, it becomes more of a financial burden because now we have to hire sessional faculty to cover that relief work. So having a dedicated position to it, I think really helps to smooth out some of those issues for our department because you know that there's somebody here doing that work. Because for School of Business, international is a really huge part of what we do, who we are. You know, we we it's so important to us and it's important institutionally, obviously, but, you know, the vast majority of international students either find their way into one of our programs or take some of our courses as part of their program, say, in computing science, they might still take some accounting courses from us or they'll use as elective in their other degree. So we do find a, a very large number of international students, which is lovely, but it comes with a lot of challenges for sure. I really like you pointing that out. You know, at a previous institution, I was in a coordination role as a secondment, coordinating a bunch of our interdisciplinary degrees. And what I found was, you know, because I'm a human being, midterm exams or finals or research papers in my in my teaching courses, the coordination work didn't get done during those few weeks, right? And I think that if we take instructional support seriously, it can be really helpful to dedicate roles to it. Even the teaching, the the components around how to be a successful student, yes. those things are important. Those aren't minor. 
no, they're not minor. And and so that part of, of it, I can do. I think I've kept you quite a long time, but <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, Lisa. I'm really grateful for the chat. Thank you, Bren. I really enjoyed it. You made it really easy. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. So that is it for season three, episode five of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. And I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. In both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. My tiny teaching tip is to consider being open about your own feelings of overwhelm. I think that it helps. For a lot of us, the primary models that we've ever had of successful academics are workaholics. (laughs) Often really lovely workaholics, but workaholics all the same. I don't think that I can identify models in my career to this point of folks who have demonstrated a kind of working through of feelings of overwhelm exhaustion, fatigue, burnout. And I think that might be a problem given if my Twitter feed is anything to go by, how many of us are experiencing exactly that. Maybe you don't want to be open with your students about your overwhelm, although I think that that can be really valuable, especially for students in the upper levels who are looking towards careers of their own and wondering how they will manage it. But I definitely think that we need to be more open about experiences of overwhelm with each other. I think we need to cut each other more slack, but I know that I am very guilty of not letting people know when I need it. Pretty hard for people to show up for you if you don't tell them (laughs) what's going on. So hopefully they will have listened to this podcast because I'm still probably not going to have an adult conversation, but you know, (laughs) do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) My friends, I'm rooting for you. I hope that you are well. I hope you take care of yourselves. And I hope that when the opportunity arises that you take care of each other too. And I will see you next time. Bye-bye.